You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, good morning, guys. Man, let's open in prayer before we dive into the gospel of Luke again. So if you'd bow your heads with me, that'd be great. Father, um, Father, as, as we jump back into Luke's gospel this morning and as we come before you um, anticipating you to speak to us through the power of the Spirit, God, I am, I am just really um, aware of my own weakness this morning. I'm just, I feel more acutely aware of my own fear and insecurity, and uh, probably a host of other feelings. And Lord, I, no doubt, I, I believe that I'm probably not the only one that walks into the room feeling some of those things. And so Lord, we as your people are here. Lord, give us a heart and a hunger to hear from you, to hear from your word. Give us a heart and a hunger to be astonished at your word even, and to be surprised, and to be excited, and to be willing, and surrendered, and submitted, and ready to be drawn into your presence. But I pray, God, that you would take each and every one of us to the heights of what it means to know Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would take us into the depths of what it is like to Sense your closeness. I pray, Father, that you would remove from our midst any thing that would seek to distract us. I pray, God, that you would take us in our limited understanding of you and all that you want for us and this world. I pray that you would take us and wipe some of that away and just refill us. Help us to understand you more fully. This morning. Help us, Lord God, not to be sleepwalking through this morning as your text is open. God, I pray that your word would be preached powerfully and boldly and that you would affect our hearts and our desires deeply. But I pray for everyone in this room, God, that our attention would be firmly rooted to what you would have to say to us this morning. And I pray, God, that you would help me to draw our attention to you. So, Lord, I pray those things. And I thank you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So as we continue our study in Luke chapter 9 this morning, I've been thinking that we have been in this study now for, for over a year. which is good, and we're in chapter 9, and we have a long ways to go. And so as I studied this text for this week, I began to think about mountain climbers. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about climbing a mountain, ever dreamed about climbing a mountain, if you've ever observed someone climbing a mountain, but my guess and my thought is that to climb a mountain would be super difficult. I remember 
numerous times throughout my life being in the Rocky Mountains, watching people scale the face of these mountains and just thinking in awe of how difficult and how hard and how big of a task that must be and how much shape you'd have to be in, how many steaks you couldn't eat or whatever it may be. I remember just thinking often how hard it must be to be a mountain climber. And even though it's something that I've never done and though I've thought about often and seen others do, it's easy for me to admit that it would be a very big task to climb a mountain, especially if you never have. We all know what this feels like, this feeling of near impossibility, this feeling of near improbability, this feeling of beyond my capacity to make this happen, that feeling of insecurity or fear that could overwhelm you in the moments of thinking about doing something that is beyond your ability. We all know what this feels like. We know what it feels like to face an insurmountable task or, or an impossible situation. And we've all been in those moments where we stopped and we thought that what we are facing right now is way too big for us. That there is no getting over the top of this. We've all had those moments, whether it's the prospect of getting married or pursuing new employment or raising teenagers or giving birth to a baby, paying the bills or confronting sin deep within us, trusting Jesus or maybe grieving the loss of a friend or a family member. We've all faced things that seem far beyond and much bigger than we can ever think to overcome or accomplish. And that's why we need this text. That's why the text that we're getting ready to jump into this morning in Luke chapter 9 is so important for us to grab a hold of and so important for the Holy Spirit to download truth into us through because this text is all about seemingly impossible and insurmountable tasks. And I I have to confess to you guys that in many ways, in many ways, this is how I actually see this text in front of us today. I actually, as I have attempted to study this text throughout the week, I have seen it as being something that is too big for me to handle. It's a task that seems completely insurmountable, impossible, too big for me to wrestle with, to deal with, to interpret, to exegete, to exposit, to lay out, to preach to you this morning. C.J. Mahaney in, in preaching this text, says that this is one of the most common stories, one of the most well-known stories about Jesus, but the most single, solitary, misunderstood passage of all time. To hear another preacher of CJ's caliber say that as he begins to preach this text further puts me in a place where I feel like this is too big of a task for me this morning. And yet, 
And yet Jesus is bigger, right? I mean, don't we all agree, hopefully, I pray that we all would agree, or if you're here and you're, you're, you're kind of checking Jesus out and you're not sure if Jesus is bigger or not, Jesus is bigger than those things that we find in front of us. And isn't this maybe what the Lord wants for us is to, is to see these mountains that come up in front of us, these hills that are too hard to accomplish or get over. Isn't it when we bump up against those seasons and those circumstances of life, isn't that Jesus saying, I am bigger, but I don't want you to forget it. Isn't that really what those seasons are about? And in all honesty, isn't that what the scriptures are all about from beginning to end? Is painting this picture from Genesis to Revelation that Jesus is bigger. One commentator said that this text is all about the, the, all about the supremacy and the glory of Christ. Which is another way of saying that this text is all about how Jesus is bigger than anything we'll ever face. He's bigger than anything we'll ever attempt to do. He's bigger than any mistake we've ever made. He's bigger than any sin that has ever held us in bondage. He's bigger than any relationship that has gone south. He's bigger than any circumstance that you and I would struggle with, Jesus is bigger. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 28 through 31 of chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And if you're tracking with this, in, in the previous verses, Luke has recorded how Jesus questions his disciples regarding his identity. He says, who does the crowd say that I am now? Who do you say that I am now? Now that you've answered that, let me say to you, this is who I am. I am Jesus. I have, I have come to suffer tremendously. Die and then be raised to life as your sinless sacrifice. And then Jesus moves on and he says, and by the way, now that you know who I am, now if you think you want to join the club and follow me, now if you want to call yourself Christian, if you want to be my disciples and pick up your cross and start walking daily towards your death for my sake, just as I am walking daily towards my death for your sake so that you may truly live. And then at the end of last week's episode, 
after speaking about what it means to be a disciple and pick up our cross and carry it, Jesus ends last week's episode in verses by saying to the disciples that, that some of them will see the kingdom of God before they die. And now, eight days later, right? The text tells us, eight days later, Jesus invites Peter and James and John to climb a mountain with him. And at some point, he stops and begins to pray. And and while he's praying, Jesus is transfigured radiantly. His face changes. His clothing changes. He's transfigured or he's transformed when the appearance of his face is altered. And when his clothing begins to glow in sparkling white, almost as though he'd been bedazzled by some little kid's bedazzling machine. And then Moses and Elijah both show up. And they appear in glory as well, and they begin talking with Jesus about the time for his departure. I want you to think about this word, departure, in the text. That word actually means exodus. It is the same parallel word for the Hebrew language, exodus, which draws our attention back to the Old Testament and the fact that Moses led the Israelites on an exodus. He led them on an exodus out of captivity because of their sin, their bondage because of their sin. Moses led them out of that. And ironically, this is the conversation that they are having as the three of them, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, are talking together. And you imagine that that as they're talking about his departure and they're talking about the Exodus, maybe, maybe they're talking about the similarities between what Moses did in the Old Testament in terms of leading sinful people out of bondage to sin. And Jesus, now on the scene, who's getting ready, set his face towards Jerusalem to carry his cross to go to his death, to be resurrected so that we could be led out of bondage to sin. The similarities between the two are striking. And what we see here is this this amazing mountaintop experience where where Jesus is transformed physically by, by some sort of heavenly radiance. He's visited by two men. Those two men represent two things, the law and the prophets. I want you to imagine this with me for a moment. Moses, Moses, the writer of the law, the one who stood on the side of another mountain in the Old Testament and received the law directly from God himself as he wrote the law. And then, and, then, and then Elijah, most likely the greatest and most popular prophet in all of Israel's history to this point. These are the two men that are meeting with Jesus on this mountainside. And imagine with me, as Philip Ryken says, that, that what it must have been like to observe three of the greatest theologians of all time discussing the theological implications and connections of the law and the prophets, and the gospel. This is a a seemingly insurmountable task for, for someone 
to bring home to us this morning. These, these implications, these theological thoughts and ideas are so lofty and they're so high that to be able to bring them down to ground level for us so that we receive some sort of practical implication and practical picture of what Luke is teaching us is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. And the reality is this. The reality is that, that Moses wrote the law and it was meant to help Israel learn how to live rightly in a God-honoring way. The whole idea of the law that Moses wrote in the Testament would hang on this one word, love. Love God and love your neighbor. You might remember that from the New Testament as well because Jesus said all of the law and the prophets hangs on this one thing. Even furthermore, in Christ we find that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The problem is this, that the law cannot save us. The law cannot save us because we cannot obey it perfectly. It's because of our sin. And all the law has done is acted as a school teacher or a babysitter. This is the argument that the Apostle Paul makes throughout the entirety of the book of Galatians. Is that the law, this list, this task list of Right and wrong things. In reality, it's like a babysitter or a school teacher which teaches you and I how to live properly as well as points out when we have not lived properly. So the law is designed to do those two things, but it's also designed to point us to our need for a Savior. So you and I can't save ourselves from our mess of sin. And the law can't save us from our mess of sin either. The only way the law could save us is if we could do every piece of it perfectly. But we know that that's impossible. And then you have the prophets, right? Prophets, and they're kind of a crazy bunch of dudes. As you read throughout the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. And these guys did some extreme things like eating food that was cooked over animal feces to prove that we have become a rotten stench in God's nostrils. That's a crazy thing to do. We might lock you up and call you a lunatic if you did that today. They laid down naked on one side in the middle of the public square and stayed there for so many days to prove a point to get people's attention. You find in the book of Hosea that Hosea is like a prophet for God and as he pursues his whoring wife, he's doing so so that we might see how God pursues us who have been unfaithful to him. Some of them called down fire from heaven. Some of them ate locusts and honey. Some of them preached loud and harsh messages, calling people to repent and trust in God. But these men were only voices for God. They couldn't save us. The prophets have no ability to save or change a person. Their only job was to speak for God, was to be a mouthpiece, a voice for God. And their entire purpose was to turn the hearts of people towards their need for a Savior who is Jesus. 
So neither the law nor the prophets have the power to save us, right? And yet, here is Moses, the representative of the law, and Elijah, the representative of the prophets, standing with Jesus on a mountainside in shining glory, discussing the saving work that Jesus is about to do. We have this happening in this story and in our text. And it's, it could be a really cute Sunday school story to tell, but what is the reason for this text? What is God's purpose in this? Why did Luke record this story? Listen, it is far too easy to read this text and see the mountaintop experience that this is and see the the loftiness of the theological implications and to say this makes no stinking sense to me so we're going to move on to another text and we're going to read that but our jobs as preachers our job as christians as we study god's word is to stick with it and to begin to understand why is this written? What does this tell me about Jesus? And then furthermore, what do I learn about how I should live in light of what this text tells me about Jesus? And the reality is really simple. Jesus is bigger than the law and the prophets. Jesus is bigger than both of those. But think about this too. Both Moses and Elijah were seen in glory, right, on the mountainside. Both of them were seen in glory. They showed up in glory, meaning they began to glow or shine as well. But in other words, as as they entered Jesus' presence, they too began to glow. Listen to this. If if you're not catching this, I I hope it becomes clear to you really soon. Jesus is the only one. He is the one who brings any sense of value whatsoever to the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are bankrupt. They're useless without Jesus. Without Christ, this message that I preach to you today is worthless. The message that I hope to preach to you this morning is not one of moral therapeutic deism where you begin to feel all happy and clappy because you got a great moral message that taught you how to not drink, not have sex with your partner, and not do all these bad quote-unquote moral things so that now you feel good about yourself and have therefore earned God's affection. That is not my hope this morning. Though moral living is an outcome of the gospel and an outcome of understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for you and you are motivated that way, yes, that is not my hope for this text. My hope for this message today is that when you leave here, you would see that Jesus is bigger than anything. You guys don't look excited at all. Jesus is the only one who brings any sense of value to the law and the prophets. Don't hear me wrong. The the law is important. The law is important because it records what holy and God-honoring living looks like. 
It tells us what to do in situations where we don't know what to do. It helps us answer the question, how can I live in a way that honors God? Even though I know I will never completely honor him perfectly. And you might say, what would give me the desire to even want to live in a way that honors him in the first place? When you see the picture of who Jesus is, then that desire begins to well up inside of you. It also does this. In those moments when we fail to do what the law has required of us to do, then we see a picture of Jesus who lived it perfectly and then gave himself to die in our place to pay the price, to pay the ransom, to get us out of bondage so that we could then live freely. This is the picture of Jesus. The reality is when it comes to the law and the prophets, is that the prophets are pretty awesome too because the thing that the prophets did was that they confronted us in our sinfulness and our unbelief. The prophets' primary job is to confront us in our unbelief and our sinfulness and our, in our inability to repent. And in the midst of that, their, their, their job is to turn us to Jesus by saying, guess what? Guess what? Though, though you've made the mistake, though you've failed yet again, though you have broken the law that was laid down for you because you couldn't follow it perfectly, here's a picture of grace and mercy in the face of Jesus. The purpose of the prophets and the law was to help us to live rightly and when we don't live rightly to turn us back to Jesus so that we are then motivated to live rightly and when we don't live rightly it would turn us back to Jesus. So there's a lot of people that know a lot of things about Jesus but they don't know Jesus. That's a problem today especially for popular American Christianity. So the law and the prophets are pointless and powerless without Jesus. Listen, doing the right thing won't earn you any stars in heaven. If you've heard me say that once, you've probably heard me say it a million times. But this is the way that we often live. We often live in ways that we want to earn God's favor or prove our worth or our value. And we don't find it in the law or the prophets because the law and the prophets are useless without Jesus because Jesus is bigger than the law and the prophets. You can study the law and the prophets all day, but if you don't study them in a Christocentric way, meaning if you don't study the law and the prophets and the rest of Scripture with Jesus in your lens, you will be left hopeless. There's no hope in the law and the prophets. The only place to find a hope is in Christ alone as we sang today in worship. And there are times during worship when I feel like we are a dead people. There are times during worship where I feel like, why don't we get excited when we sing these songs? 
There are times in worship where I am so concerned about us as a people and about our hearts because sometimes I'm afraid that we are dead and that God has not breathed life into us. And, and what we need more than anything else is for Jesus in those moments to breathe life into us so that we would fall before him in adoration and worship. And if we saw a picture of Jesus as being as big as he really truly is, it's what we would do. It's why the scriptures say that at some point in time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me bring this down to ground level. Let me, let, me, let me attempt to make a concrete application out of this first section of Scripture. And many of you hearing this message, you are, you are weary and you are tired and you are discouraged because you keep catching yourself living in ways that do not honor the Lord. And so what you do is you, is you dig your heels in. A picture of a guy attempting to rein in an unruly horse and you have, you have dug your heels in because sin has run rampant in your life for so long that you are in chains. So you're digging your heels in as, as deep as you can, hoping that you can stop. But what's happening is you're becoming worn out, tired, discouraged. It feels like a, a heavy weight Every week you attempt to live better so that you can be better than you were last week. Or every week you attempt to live better so that you can impress God more. Though we may not want to admit those things because we may not even understand or identify that those desires are deep down inside. There's only two reasons and one is to become better. The reality is Jesus is better. You won't get better if Jesus isn't better for you. You won't get better if Jesus isn't bigger for you. You will continue to dig your heels in and try, try, try. Maybe some of you realize that you keep failing God as you look at the law and you say, man, God wanted me to do this instead. Or as you hear the prophets saying, you should have lived this way instead. And so some of you, you're not even digging your heels in. You're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You're now just throwing your hands up in the air like you don't care. And you give in with this excuse that everybody sins. I wasn't as bad as it was last week. Or I'll just get better next week. And you're just giving in. So the law and the prophets are breathing death to you. That's what's happening. Instead of turning you to Jesus who was bigger. Some of you hear a message of repentance which points out your sin and it calls you to turn from your sin. And so you feel bad about your sin. You feel depressed about your sin. And you begin running in circles from the law that convicts you and guides you. And you run from that to the prophets who convict you and guide you. But then in the midst of all of that, you forget to be guided to Jesus. And you're guided right back to the law again. Or you're guided right back to the prophets again. Or right back to the law again. And you continue to fail. And life continues to get harder. And Jesus continues to be minimized in your sight instead of being enlarged. 
In other words, some of you think that doing things right will eventually save you. Others of you think that admitting your failure and your need to repent will actually save you. But this text is designed to teach us that the law and the prophets won't save us because only Jesus saves, because Jesus is bigger. So the only logical and theological conclusion here is to quit running from the law to the prophets and from the prophets to the law or from our actions and our inactions and our activity to our religion. And what we should do is we should begin running from the law to the prophets to Jesus. Because he is bigger. Listen, only in Christ do the law and the prophets make any sense or have any real value because Jesus is problem obviously in all this is our is our finite our limited understanding our understanding is limited so we struggle to understand these things these higher loftier theological implications and I almost am concerned at times like the apostle Paul who said man I fed you milk for so long and now that I try to bring some meat I'm afraid it's going to upset your stomach right and so I'm concerned as we continue our study through this my concern is that is, is that many of you may be hearing what I'm saying this morning, but it's as if you are in a stupor, almost like you are sleeping through life, sleepwalking through life. And when things are coming your direction, it's like you're deflecting, you're sleeping. Which is interesting because the text addresses this too. Look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. I, mean, I have to make a side note. And anytime somebody invites you over to their house or invites you to take a trip with them, it's probably not the wisest thing for you to at some point jump into the experience and say, Hey, it's really good that I'm here. Aren't you happy I'm here? This is what's taking place in the text. Peter's like, hey, it's really good that, that, that we're here. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Hey, you guys are having a conversation over there about some really interesting things. It's good that we're here because we could build tents for you. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, <laughs> you just got to catch that here in a bit. It'll, it's good. The light's going to come on, I guarantee you. You ever experienced one of those moments, right? One, one of these moments where things were not completely clear to you, where things were a little bit foggy, a little bit hazy, where you were like, I, I, think, I think he's peeling back the layers, and I might be starting to see a little bit more clearly. Like, you wake up, you, you didn't put your glasses on. You're like, I can't see anybody. This is grand for me right now in this moment. But then you put your glasses on. You're like, oh, my God, help me. God, please have mercy on me when you put your glasses on and things become clear. I had one of these moments recently, something similar to this. Uh, I was taking a nap on my couch in my house. And those of you know, we have a few kids in our house, usually at all times, because we have a few kids. And in my peripheral, in my subconscious, I could hear what, what sounded like as I was attempting to sleep. Okay, I could hear what sounded like kids 
arguing. And then suddenly I was jolted awake in the, in the midst of my trying to get some rest. I was jolted awake by the light in the, in the living room coming on. And my immediate response was to begin to get hard on one of those kids for arguing. And, and before I realized it, a ton of things had kind of flown out of my mouth. And, and then suddenly I realized all of them are just standing there smirking at me. Kind of like some of you were doing right now. They're just smirking at me, just kind of laughing at me. And I'm like, well, what, what happened? And they're like, Dad, we, we weren't arguing. We were playing a game. It included turning the lights on and off. It's that moment where things became really clear. I realized how stupid I was, how dumb I had been, how blinded I had been. The light of illumination had opened my eyes completely. Right? I was no longer sleepwalking. In that moment, in my limited and finite understanding, I began to see something bigger was taking place. This is what's happening in the text. In our limited understanding, what Jesus is attempting to show us is that he is bigger than our limited understanding. He's bigger. But notice with me this. Notice that Moses and Elijah show up, right? Moses and Elijah show up on the mountainside. They're having their theological convo with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, who have sunk into this deep sleep, which is something they seem to be really good at, if you read the Gospels. It's something we're all good at, sleepwalking through life, thinking we know something, when in reality, we don't. We're all good at sleeping at the wheel and coasting through life as if things are all good. But Peter, when he is fully awake, he decides it's best just to blurt out whatever comes to mind immediately. Let me just say whatever comes to mind. This is Peter. This is his issue. He blurts out stupid things often, which usually causes him to get rebuked sharply by Jesus. And then he goes home and he cries to his mom. Right? No, not Peter. Peter doesn't do that. Peter's the rock. And Peter is actually fully awake. And he thinks he understands what's happening. He basically says, hey, it's, it's good for us to be here. I'm glad you guys are here. I'm excited to experience it, but it's, you should be lucky. Oh, I'm here. I could build you a tent so we could prolong this experience. And Luke says that Peter says these things not knowing what he said. Interesting side note. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. Gospel of Mark commonly understood that Peter is standing over Mark's shoulder giving Mark his dissertation in the Gospel. So you could call the Gospel of Mark the Gospel of Peter. In the Gospel of Mark, this same story also in chapter 9 of Mark being written by Peter himself, is worded almost verbatim the same at this point. It's, it's Peter's almost humble affirmation that I got no clue what I'm talking about. I had no clue what I was talking about. My understanding was limited. It's just Peter through Mark in Mark's gospel. So as we see this, we see Peter just acting and speaking stupidly from his own limited or finite sense of understanding. Keep in mind, too, that, that by Peter suggesting that they all just set up these tents and sing Kumbaya together, 
that what he's really doing is he's attempting to keep Jesus from moving forward with this plan. Just think about that for a minute. He's, he's attempting to keep Jesus from moving forward with his plan to, to head towards Jerusalem to accomplish what he had come to do. Jesus had come to seek and to save that which was lost through his journey to the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. And Peter, Peter is more concerned at this point with preserving this experience at the expense of the cross. You know what this is like, right? And you were certain that you were, you were supposed to make this decision this way? Like you, you were convinced that this is the direction you should go. This was the thing that you should say. This is what you should pursue. And then in a moment, everything becomes clear and you say, whoa, that wasn't what Jesus wanted for me. And then there's this sense of fear in those moments, right? This sense of fear, a sense of how do I move forward now in light of my stupidity, in light of my limited understanding, in light of what I thought was right but I now know was really wrong, how do I get myself out of the mess that I am in? How do I move forward with any clarity? Look at verses 34 and 36 with me for a minute. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Underline that. Circle that. Highlight that. Draw smiley faces and clouds around it. Whatever you have to do, that, I believe, is the key piece of this text. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And listen, as I thought about this text this week, I was reminded of these hot afternoons when our family was at the lake enjoying our family vacation recently. And I was reminded of those hot afternoons because in the hottest parts of the day, we tried to stay inside the cabin where it was cool, just to enjoy each other's company, eat food, take naps, and watch TV. One of the television shows that we got kind of hooked on watching on our vacation was this show called Undercover Boss. And the cool thing about this show, if you've never seen it, is the show is all about typically a major CEO of a major company coming in, disguising himself as a brand new employee, and then coming out into the field and working with the other employees all in an effort to assess the health of the organization and to find some ways of, of being a blessing to the people that worked for him or even correcting the behavior of those who worked in the organization. And there's a pivotal moment in every episode, and that's what this is. In the text, it's a pivotal moment when God the Father says, listen to him. It's a pivotal moment in every episode of Undercover Boss when they unveil who the new employee actually was. And in those moments, here's what you see. You see this look come across the faces of the employees, this total dumbfounded and excited look like, oh my gosh, that's who he really is. In reality, they realized just how big that person was. And they were compelled 
in those moments because they realized how big he is or how big he was. They were compelled to listen intently and expectantly. It's all too often I believe that when we open God's word or when we arrive at the gathering of the church and the word is open, I'm convinced oftentimes that that we are not ready to listen to what Jesus is saying. And the reality is that this text is teaching us that Jesus is better than the law and the prophets. He's not just some new guy on the block. He's actually the supreme and glorious dude by which and through which everything finds its meaning. Everything finds its meaning. You and I are completely hopeless without Jesus. We have no meaning, no purpose, no reason for being here. Otherwise, churches then are just big country clubs to come gather in. There aren't enough words or books or movies or great thinking that can actually capture the entirety of the supremacy and the glory of Jesus. There is no way that anyone can completely understand or comprehend or explain the grandness and the bigness of Jesus. And yet Jesus is bigger than our limited understanding. He's bigger than our stupid, in-the-moment, on-the-fly attempts at living like him or falling hard after him or failing big time. He's bigger than all those things. So oftentimes, when we begin to realize this big, lofty idea, the fact that Jesus is bigger, we get to this point where we then say, well, what do we do now? Like, we're so far up here. What do we do now? But then in the end of this text, we learn that Jesus just like that undercover boss, is bigger so we should listen to him. I mean, isn't it mind-blowing to think for a moment about how lofty this text can take us all the way up in the sky about how grand and big Jesus is compared to anything or anyone. And then at the drop of a hat in just a moment, it just drops right back down. And a single stroke of the pen in just a couple words drops us down to ground level. This is my son, chosen to suffer. Listen to every word he says. I mean, if you're like me and you're, you're wondering how to live in the grace of God, Maybe you're like me and you're wondering how to live in the depths of God's love. Or maybe you're like me and you're just wondering how to live in a cross-centered way rather than a me-centered way. Maybe, maybe you're wondering how to live free from the bondage of sin in your life. Maybe you're wondering how to, how to move forward from making one stupid decision after the next based upon your own limited understanding. Maybe, maybe if you're like me, you're wondering these things and then in steps God, right? In steps God in this text through this cloud, and he says, hey, hey, Jesus is bigger. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus when he says, forgive as you've been forgiven. 
Listen to him when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Listen to him when he says that he has come so that you might have life abundantly. Listen to him when he says that that we are to carry our crosses in the same way that he does. Listen to him when he says, cut off the things that are killing you before you die for good. Listen to Jesus through the voice of scriptures, the Holy Spirit and the church family. Why? Because Jesus is bigger. Let me invite our music team forward as we begin to conclude our time together. And as we conclude, I want to summarize quickly what we've talked about. Jesus is bigger than all of your law-keeping and law-breaking and your religious rhetoric and your limited understanding. And because Jesus is bigger than all of those things, we should listen to every word he says. Because his words are the gift of life everlasting. You remember Peter from this text, right? I want you to listen to what Peter says later. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, listen closely. This is Peter saying this. Remember, he's the one who spoke stupidly in the text. Listen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. Born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to. Doesn't this sound familiar? Doesn't this almost sound like this is something somebody said a little bit ago in the text? You would do well to pay attention. You would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you hunger for Jesus? Do you hunger for him? Do you pay attention to Jesus' words as though they were a lamp shining into the dark spaces and places of your heart? And let me tell you something. If you think you're listening to Jesus and you think you're hearing him and you think that he's shining in your heart like a lamp and all you're hearing is a list of do's and don'ts, then you're not hearing Jesus. If you're, if, you're, if you're paying attention to Jesus and you're listening to his every word and you're hearing him, then it will be like a conversation that I had this week with a fellow brother that as we talked, it was like we were caught up 
It was like we were caught up even in the face of insurmountable odds, even in the face of how do we lead a church family, even in the face of how do we deal with this issue or that issue or, or this mess or that mess, as though we were caught up in the midst of the presence of God's joy in front of us and we saw Jesus as bigger than anything else. Is that you? Is Jesus becoming more famous in you? Are you desiring him more and more? Is your thirst for the presence of Jesus, not the knowledge of Jesus, but the presence of Jesus, really knowing Jesus, is that becoming so insatiable to you? Like, like, a, like a thirst that cannot be quenched. Is it, is it like you just want to be close to Jesus? Do you hunger for him? Do you thirst for his word? Is there evidence of a thirst and a hunger for God's word because, because the word is Jesus become flesh? Jesus is bigger than anything. Jesus is bigger than everything. Is he what you thirst for? Is he what you hope for? Is he what you have your eyes set upon? If Jesus truly is bigger than everything else in your life, then your answer to these questions is yes. If not, if your answer is no, and I implore you, I beg you, I ask you, ask the Lord to give you this hunger for Jesus because Jesus is bigger. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this text and thank you for your help this morning. And Lord, as we enter into a final song of worship, I pray, God, that you would paint a picture of how much bigger you are than anything or anyone and everything. Pray, God, that you would draw us up into your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us not by a picture of how we're going to do better or how it's going to get greater, but a picture of how much bigger and greater you are. So, Lord, I pray those things and trust you with them. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. as we enter into worship, there'll be a few of us near the front to pray with you if you have a prayer need. Thanks for being here, and thanks for letting me preach this morning. I love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.